If you would please turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18, I'll be reading Luke 18 verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Let's pray. Father, I, I plead with You as a widow, plead with the judge, but I plead with you, knowing it's your good pleasure to glorify your Son through the Word. I plead with you. Allow me to represent Jesus' words accurately and work in us and amongst us by your Spirit to the glory of His name, and to the salvation of our souls. Amen. This passage, can you hear me through that? Like I can't hear me at all. Okay. This passage is part of the context of chapter 17, verses 20 through 37 that we have seen the last two weeks. He's not leaving this context. And what we have seen is that Jesus has laid out His two comings. That He came through the womb of Mary the first time in order to suffer and die and rise and ascend. He brought with Him the promised kingdom. In other words, what we saw is that with Jesus' coming, the fulfillment of the kingdom was now present. And that means that since His coming, we who come to Christ enter the kingdom that is present. We saw that the kingdom is now. But we also saw in Jesus' words, the kingdom is not yet. 
not yet in its totality or in its confirmation. And that means for us, we live between the times. All who have come to Christ, it means that they have been raised from the dead, spiritually, not physically yet. We've been raised from the dead by the power and the presence of the kingdom, and yet we remain in mortal bodies with our sin nature, waiting still for the coming of Jesus. The second coming of Christ, when He will vindicate for all time and eternity the elect. Just briefly, Jesus talked about the presence of the kingdom back in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 17. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for look, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's present. But in the end, one day, Jesus will come back, and He will come back with catastrophic signs for all to see. It will not be hidden, and it will not be secret then, as He says in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. Okay, that's what we have seen over the last two weeks. That reality creates tension. The tension is this. For believers now, until the second coming of Christ, to enjoy the presence of the kingdom of God in which they live while they are still living in the not yet of the kingdom. That's a Christian. And that dynamic is what makes believers different from the rest of the world. According to Ephesians, Paul says, we are seated with God in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And those are not future realities. Those are very present realities for every believer. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells us Christians to live this way in Colossians 3. If then, it's true of you, if you have been raised up with Christ, then keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, because you have died and your life is right now hidden with Christ in God. That's our life in the present. But there's a future. Listen to the last line. 
And when Christ, who is your life, returns, then you also will appear with Him in glory, not judgment. There's the Christian life in a nutshell. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells us in this period of the now, the presence of the kingdom, of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and working, but we're still not yet. These bodies are broken. Our souls are undone. He says, this is how you live it. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God, Christian, has appeared. That's what Jesus is first coming. He's come. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What's the effects? Who are those people who are in the kingdom being saved? He describes them. This salvation has come, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright in godly lives in this present age. Okay, we're in this tension. Now listen to the next line. As we are waiting for the future kingdom. As we are waiting for our blessed hope. That is, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so the tension of every genuine Christian, that internal battle is the presence of the kingdom that is changing us, and yet we're in the not yet period. And this is how Jesus said it in chapter 17, in this context in verse 22. He says, guys, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the coming of the Son of Man. You say, get me out of here! And you won't see it. That's pressure. That's a battle. That's tension. And that longing to see Him is in stark contrast to the cultures of this world. For the last 2,000 years since Jesus came the first time, the question has been, how are we to live? Those who have come to Christ, how are we to live out this Christian life in the midst of this tension without losing heart and turning back to the world? And that is precisely what Jesus addresses this morning in our text, the how. You see chapter 18, verse 1. Remember, Luke did not write chapter 18. It's not a different chapter. That, that we added that later for reference, so I can tell you where to turn. This is one flow of what Luke is doing. And here's the transition. And he told them a parable to the effect Here's the effect Jesus is after. That they, His disciples, ought always to pray. 
and to not lose heart. The point of the parable we're going to read is clear. Pray. 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 Pray earnestly like a desperate widow so that you don't lose heart. And if you look at the end of the text in verse 8, look at the end of verse 8 for a moment. This is what is the key for me to know that this is the same context as the last two weeks of the presence of the kingdom and the future of the kingdom, and we're in this tension. Jesus ends it, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? There is the second coming again. He's on the same subject. And so, let's get the flow of what Jesus is doing here. Back in chapter 17, verses 26 to 30, Jesus describes the days of His second coming. And He says it'll be like the days of Noah where God's judgment came in a flood. It'll be like Sodom when God sent the fiery judgment against those people. And Jesus said, this is what it was like. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage and setting up businesses, buying and selling. In other words, just normal, everyday life. But the point was they were going about that life without regard for God. And the warning of judgment in their own souls. In other words, Life, he says, just goes on normally. When I'm coming back, it'll be going on as it's always been going on. And then suddenly, the catastrophic end in judgment will come. And Jesus' point is, the problem isn't with gross sin. The problem is with the basic necessities and normal life of every day. Eating and drinking and marrying and buying and selling and doing it without regard to God. And so the flow of thought is that believers who enter the present kingdom and await the future consummation, they are in a huge battle which most of the world has no idea what's going on. It is the battle to maintain a passionate heart for true riches and treasures who is Christ Himself. It is a battle to resist and repent from and hate indwelling sinful desires until they bury you. It's a battle against temptation. But what's clear in the text, it's also a battle in the face of ordinary life, like parenting, in doing marriage, in doing singleness, trying to pay your bills, the danger that all those present to the soul. 
to harden our hearts. Remember, Jesus laid out this danger in Matthew 24 when He said, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will just grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so, that's the question that's before us in Luke 17, in the beginning of Luke 18. How can any of us this morning who profess Christ, how can we endure to the end? How can we be found, this is part of the text, filled with faith when Jesus returns? Will there be any? And Jesus tells this parable in order to give the answer to that question. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's his answer. Pray. Luke, more than any of the four Gospels, they all do it, but Luke more, makes an emphasis of the Creator who became a human being. And in His humanity, He was desperate to get alone. Where is he? He's not in camp. He's out in the woods early in the morning praying because as a human being he was desperate for that relationship, that dependence, for the petitions of his heart to be answered And I would just, I am so confident of this. The act of His praying in His human soul and with all His limitations, that very activity of praying was the answer. The only man who never sinned. And so Jesus answers it for us. How are you guys going to endure? Pray. Get alone with God constantly, regularly, and pour out your hearts as dependent children. And then this is how Jesus illustrates that starting with verse 2. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to Him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while the judge refused. But afterwards, He said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual 
coming. Okay, Jesus he gives us a picture. Here's this judge. He, he's the kind of guy who takes bribes. He's all about what's in it for me. He has no fear of God. And he couldn't care less about people. Maybe his family, but you know, he didn't care. And then there's this poor widow. Uh, trust me, her husband did not have a life insurance policy. And this is probably some kind of financial dispute, and she's desperate. And Jesus makes this, he just wants to see it. This judge, he has no fear. What does it mean? He he has no fear of God which would lead him to do justice because it's justice or the right thing. And he could not care less about people. That's what it means where he has no respect of man or mankind. He couldn't care less. But he gets up in the morning and he's going to go to work and there's the woman. Give me justice. Hear my case. Hour later at the courthouse, there she is again. Give me justice. He goes to lunch with his buddies. She shows up day after day. And finally he says, I have to get this woman off my back. Let me just, remember he's in it. What's for him? This is for me now, the judge. Let me settle her case. Give her the justice she's pleading for. So she quits bugging me. What's the point? Part of the point is clearly this. Jesus wants us to see this woman's persistence. If you've had a child, a two-year-old's, well, gosh, and an eight-year-old's, and a 12-year-old, their persistence, sometimes parents... That's not, it's not parental, parental advice, but sometimes you just give in. Just stop. Her persistence and her desperateness got her the justice she sought. Now, the point of this parable is not that God is unjust like the judge. The point is not that God couldn't care less about His people. The exact opposite is Jesus' point. This is what is known as an argument from the lesser to the greater. We all do it, even though you don't use those terms. It just means if this is true, the lesser, and how much more will this be true? That's the point Jesus is driving home. See, if this unrighteous, unjust judge gave the lady the justice she sought, then how much more will your loving Heavenly Father respond to you who cry out to Him day and night? In verses 6 and 7, 
Jesus draws out the lesson of the parable that he intends. And we know from Luke exactly what Jesus intends. He intends that you would always pray. Keep praying. Keep coming. And don't lose heart. That's the point of the parable, right? And so he draws it out in verses 6 and 7. And Jesus said, Listen to, hear what the unrighteous judge said. I'm going to give her the justice. And then he says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? There's his point. If you cry to God day and night, if you always pray and don't lose heart, then you will not be like Lot's wife. I just want to stop. If you're ever in doubt of what I think the main point of this passage is, I just said it. That's the context. If you who believe in Christ pray, commune, cry with tears and pain and pleading and thanksgiving and joy, and you don't stop two years from now, you will not be like Lot's wife. You will not be one of those, as Jesus said, grinding at the mill who was left for judgment. Jesus' directives for all of His disciples is crystal clear here. Don't stop praying. Don't give up. Don't tire of pouring out your Desperate, heartfelt pleadings to the Father. The pressure of worldliness will become greater and greater, Jesus said, as that day draws near. And let me just, I just, you judge whether this is true. I just want to say that a little bit differently. The pressure of worldliness will become stronger the longer you've been a Christian, there's no coasting in the Christian life. You are either volitionally pushing forward or you are drifting backward more and more into living according to the desires of your flesh. 1 Peter 4, 7 says it this way, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the purpose of your prayer. 
So yeah, okay. What should I pray? What kind, what kind of prayer list should I have? Now I'm going to, I'm going to put a parenthesis real quickly. I really do believe in prayer lists. And they're written and people you pray for. I, I believe in that. I think it's biblical. There are different kinds of prayer. There's petitionary prayer. There's thanksgiving. There's, there's worshipful. There's just communing. Okay. And, and, and I do those things regularly. And most every morning my wife and I pray together. How may I pray for you? Give me. Okay, there's a list. Thank you. And let's pray. Okay. I think, though, that the core of what Jesus means here by pray always and don't lose heart is something beyond merely that. So what do I pray? I just want to say, really? What do you, what do you pray? Here's the question we got to ask ourselves when we read His words here. Do you not feel the urgency in Jesus' words, for your real life. Do you not battle against your sinful nature that abides with you? Do, do you not have physical pain? Do you not have emotional or relational pain. Just, no one's around and it boils up. They, you say, God, I want that to be turned for good in the midst of it so that it's not turned into causing me to turn back to Sodom, to bitterness, or to unforgiveness. Do, do you not have that real Christian life? The question is, is that not enough? For us to pray always and not lose heart. In other words, I just here, here it is. Just here. What, what do you think it means, Joe? I think it means this. Wake up vigilantly every day and just purpose to be real. And get alone with God and feel your life deeply. Okay. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in you while you're doing that, you will pray. You'll pray, you'll plead, you'll rejoice, you'll be thankful. You'll pester Him. I'm not satisfied with this in my life. And you'll do it with a gospel, respectful confidence. Jesus is saying to us in this parable that we are the poor widow. We're weak. We have no husband to protect us or to plead our case for us. Her only source was the judge. And our only source is God. She comes again and again and again pestering Him to get what she needs. And He finally gives it to her to get her off His back. And Jesus is not saying, 
hey guys, you can wear God out. He's, he doesn't really want to give you it, but <sighs> I got to get rid of that person. I'm tired of them. Praying so much, I have to go to sleep sometime. It's not Jesus' point. He's already said in chapter 12 of Luke, Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, in the parable, Jesus twice lets us know the judge neither feared God or respected people or cared about people. Think about it. The whole point of that, he didn't fear God, means that if he would have feared God, he would have moved quickly to do justice to the woman, which means God is the one who always moves quickly to do justice. He's the opposite of the judge. See, if this judge, though, who has no fear of God, can be moved to finally give this woman who is persistent what she needed justly, then how much more certain can we be of the merciful, loving Father who sent His Son to redeem? Is it you? Have you believed? The elect... How much more happy is He to respond to those who cry night and day? And He says the judge also had no respect for mankind. In other words, He had no personal connection with this widow. So He did not care. Really, He just had no Empathy, not even to do justice, which was his job, on her behalf. The point is this, if that widow were his mother or his sister, he would have acted quickly. And so, as we believers pray and pray and pray, Plead, plead. I'm not seeing the answers I want, and we plead, and we plead every day. Here's the question. Does God care? Does God, as opposed to this judge, does He have something personally moving him to want to act on our behalf? That's the question. And Jesus answers that question in verse 7. Look at it. And will not God Give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night. That's His answer. It's a rhetorical question. 
means Jesus is making a statement. You can be assured. You can be assured. He hears and will give justice. And he's happy to do that for his elect. Disciples are not in the category of some obscure widow to a judge. They're not in the category of a stranger to God. Jesus says they are the elect. He's chosen them. He has set His merciful, loving kindness upon those people. He's adopted them out of darkness into light to be put into His Son. He says, come to Him. Did you listen to how the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8 for a moment. Believer, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For, for those who are called according to His purpose, here's the reason why, beloved. Because those whom He foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. What shall we say to these things? Here's Paul's answer. If God is for us, which He is, then who could be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us all. How shall He not also by Jesus give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's Jesus' point. There is nothing more important in all the universe than to have been chosen by God. So I just want to say something. If you are a believer, hear Jesus' point. If you know you have turned and repented and you're living a repentant lifestyle based on loving the gospel, Jesus Christ. And I want to say, dear believer, this means He has set His favor upon you. It means that Almighty God, the one who had just wrath against me is now for me or for you with all of His might.
we are meant not just to think it. We are meant to feel this. If an unjust judge can be moved by the persistent hounding of a stranger whom he couldn't care less about, then how much more, quote, will God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? And then Jesus asks, rhetorically, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice. He will give to them justice speedily. Now, this is a little rough, interpretive wise, I think. What are you doing? What are you saying, Jesus? You see the first clause there? Will he delay long over them? Hmm. I, I, I'm satisfied. I think I got that boiled down to two possibilities what, about what Jesus means. First, I mean, he could mean that God will not delay in bringing justice. Or this could mean he will be patient. He'll endure, he'll, he'll endure long. He'll, he'll be patient in the sense of not being irritated with his children's frequent requests. In other words, as the judge was. And he will honor their request. And he will vindicate them into You see the clause, he will give justice to them speedily. There are two possible meanings for what, what Jesus is getting at here. And first is this. By speedily here, he means suddenly. In other words, in a larger context, when the second coming happens, it will happen speedily. It will happen suddenly. It's coming Justice is coming, sort of like the martyrs in the book of Revelation. How long, O oh Lord? Are you waiting? When are you going to come? When's justice going to be finally consummated? He could mean that. It, it could also mean that Jesus is saying vindication is coming really soon, or my second coming is going to happen. Really soon. But 2,000 years later, and here we are, and Jesus has not yet returned. But I still think, both are grammatically possible here in understanding, and I still think he could have meant that. So I'm going to go with that just for, for a moment. And I have no problem with it. Because in the sense, if he means speedily, in the sense it's coming soon, oh boy, is that idea of soon relative up against 
eternity. And this is how the Apostle Peter explains just that in 2 Peter chapter 3. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. As some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay. Oh, but he, one more thing he wants to say, but don't misunderstand his patience. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. While thousands have been slowly tortured to death for refusing to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a day coming. They will say it's worth it. As when they lived in the tension between the ages, they said it's worth it as they burned the sticks below them. Jesus' point of the parable is that we would constantly and always and never tire of being with Him in prayer, petitioning, and not losing heart. Now, there's all kinds of persons, things that we believers pray for, and biblically, so... So I just, want, I just want to give a little, for a moment, a, a backdrop of this great God and be encouraged when I've been praying for 23 years for this, that, or the other thing or person. Don't tire, don't give up. He told Noah, build a boat. I'm going to send a flood and destroy mankind. But it was a hundred years after that promise before the skies opened up. And Noah had to endure the mockery of neighbors for a hundred years. He promised Abraham a son. But he watched as his young, barren woman and wife and then she enters menopause and completes that 25 years. He waited until Isaac was born. He promised Joseph in his teenage dreams, your dad and your brothers will bow down to you. But then he spent the entirety of his 20s in an Egyptian prison unjustly. First, he promised to deliver the children of Abraham. And then decades go by, and a century goes by. And now they're enslaved in Egypt in 200 years, and 300 years, and 400 years go by before God raises up Moses. At the end 
of the Old Testament. They didn't know it then, but with Malachi and Zechariah, prophecy stopped. And it's just sitting there in a, these books about a Messiah. And God is very slow, the way some count slowness. But after 400 and something years, as Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who are under the law. He knows what He's doing. And Jesus says, here's the parable so that you will learn. Keep coming to me. Keep coming to the Father. Keep pleading. Keep praying the Word. Keep being honest with your soul. This parable is Jesus' personal encouragement for every believer to pray, pray, pray. Really, continually, heartfelt, relationally pray until the second coming. When Jesus asks, in verse 8, if you'll look down there, when He asks this question, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? When He says that, He's saying, will I find that my disciples have kept praying. That's the context. He's saying, will I find that you have obeyed? Or will I find that they have lost heart and given up? That's the point. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Nevertheless, when I come back, will I find that faith on the earth? And the implication is clear. Prayer and faith go hand in glove. If we lose heart and we drift away from prayer, then the Son of Man will not find faith in us when He returns. That's huge. Faith, what is that? That's that miracle by the Spirit that produces this new birth, this new life. And so it's that dynamic that turns our hearts through the Word, through His promises, it turns our hearts to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's at the core of what faith is. We trust Him. And the Word of God, the Scripture, is the fuel to faith. Right? In that Romans 10, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. How are you going to believe someone you don't know anything about? You don't even know what they've said in order that you may trust it. The Word of God fuels faith 
And prayer is the oxygen that keeps it burning. If you don't know scientifically, you, you don't have any oxygen, you don't have any fire anymore. That means this. If you just have this glorious Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, if you, if you just have, oh no, I, I love theology and I love to read theology and what people think about Bible and all that. but you don't pray, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified. I, I, I. It's a very personal thing. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And not I, but Christ lives in me, in the life I now live in this body, I live by faith, trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And the ongoing culmination of that dynamic of Galatians 2.20 is our prayerful pleading and enjoying intimacy with God. That's the Christian life. So, I'm gonna, no, I won't say I'm closing here, though. If we lose heart and fail to regularly approach God in prayer, then our hearts will grow cold. And if that remains, and becomes a churched person's lifestyle, then he or she may not endure to the end. And the test will not be... Let me go back for a minute. The, the, the test of Jesus in the context... There'll be two in one bed. There'll be two grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other left. And the test of that will not be whether you answered an altar call sometime in the past. The test of that will not be whether you said this thing called the sinner's prayer or that you got baptized, or that you became a member of the church. The test will be whether you continued in prayer and did not lose heart. And God's elect will absolutely be saved. And they will endure to the end because they are those, as verse 7 says, cry to Him day in night. They are those whom Jesus will find having faith when He returns. That faith that loves the Word 
Any of us professing Christians who have this idea in our head, well, you know, there are those who are prayers. There are those who prayerfully bearing the fruits of the Holy Spirit in their personal life, and that's terrific. But then there's kind of like the rest of us average kind of Christians, and so we just categorize them. If you think that, you are deceived about who Jesus is, about His words, about the gospel, about the Christian life. All right. Here we go again. Application. It's two weeks in a row. It feels so dumb to try to come up with one. Because God anointed Luke to write it. And Luke gave the application. He says, this is the application. You ought always to pray and not lose heart. In good times, in bad times, in crying times. But I want to just help briefly, literally two minutes. Okay, yes, and I need this help constantly in my life. And here's one thing that helps me. How do you get energized to pray? Try this. Try it for the next seven days. Wake up in the morning, turn to Galatians 5 or have it memorized. There's a list there of the works of the flesh. Envy drunkenness, backbiting, slander, bitterness. Okay, okay. And then there's a list of the fruit of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness goodness, self-control. And then you sit alone with God and you take your fingers and put them on the pulse of your life. And you think, okay, yesterday, the day before, I got a day in front of me today. How have I been acting towards my wife or my husband or my kid or kids, or sibling, or boss, or employee. You go on and on. Okay, where am I? How are my words? Okay. If you don't have anything to pray now, I don't know what to tell you. You live a life I know not of. And so that's his point. Come on up, sir. Here's his point. Here's the application. Pray and pray. Get alone with God and pray. Be blunt, blood earnest and honest with all of your sin and your brokenness and your undoneness and how you're so sick of your constant anger that comes up. God, help me taste the fruit 
today. Commune with Him over the Word pouring out your heart. Or in the words of Jesus, or excuse me, Luke, you ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so, Father, I pray with much confidence that you would cause your commands to pray and thus not lose heart to be realized in each of our lives more and more to the glory of Jesus, to the satisfaction and joy of our souls in the midst of all of life, pain, grief, struggles, unrealized expectations. Be in our prayers the goal of our prayers.